With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 514, where we discuss the events of the day of May 10th, 1993, into the investigation into Damien Eccles. Yeah, May 10th was a busy day, and we've got a busy week, so let's go ahead and get started. Taking a look at social media, listener Josh Combs has a couple good points here for us to discuss. He writes, Bob states in the episode, he believed, at least by the later part of the day, that Damien was scared. Yet the defense most used for Damien's statements is that he was being defiant or, quote, messing with the cops. While I suppose the two thoughts aren't mutually exclusive, I think Damien's behavior prior to and certainly during the trial did not seem to be that of someone who was scared. He's actually got a lot here, so let's discuss these point by point. What do you think of that? Well, you have to understand that when you say the defense used Damien's, uh, some of his statements as messing with the cops, uh, that, you know, the, the art of editing in the documentaries kind of gives you that impression somewhat. I mean, I, and, and I'll be honest, I haven't read all of the trial transcripts yet from Damien. I've, I've started going through them. I think that there were times when he was messing with the cops. You know, Damien was a cocky kid. I mean, you could see that. Uh, when you get to see the video of him in the in the documentaries, he was just a punk, cocky kid, and I don't think that Damien ever thought that this would happen. And and I say that not because I I know Damien really well or anything like that, but it's because I work wrongful conviction cases for a living, and so I I've talked to a lot of people who were actually wrongfully convicted, and the the most common thread that I hear with all of them is. They never believed this was going to happen. Talk to Ed Eights. You know, Ed, he's a, Ed's a perfect example. Ed lied about his alibi in the in the first night of the investigation into into Elnora Griffin's murder, and he didn't lie about it where he was. He was at his girlfriend's house. She confirmed he was there. But what got him into trouble was he lied about how he got there, and he lied about how he got there because he had taken his grandmother's car without asking, and he wasn't supposed to. And his mother was sitting in the interrogation room with him. So he said that his girlfriend came and picked him up. They called the girlfriend and she said, no, I didn't. He showed up. I don't know how he got here. He had taken his grandmother's car. But it's it's the same type of thing. Well, he didn't care 
about the murder investigation, is, as he's put it many times, he, he knew he didn't kill the neighbor. He knew he didn't even see the neighbor that night. So why would he care about this investigation? He's just like, yeah, take, you know, here's my fingerprints, here's my hair, here's my blood, whatever you need, you know, just you're going to clear this up. But he was more afraid of his mother. And I, and I only relate the two stories because it's so easy for us to sit back and look at anyone's behavior and how they handled a particular situation and say, well, I, you know, I know I would never do that or I know he would never do that. And, and everybody's different. But I think at the very early stages, remember, you know, you got Steve Jones and James Sudbury who, who come to his house and talk to him, but tell him they just need his help. You know, he's, so, so he's not even feeling like a suspect. Um, and go way back to Jerry Driver days, and that's where I think where most of this comes from as far as, you know, because we're relating when he was scared to when he was kind of messing with the cops. I can totally see him at 17 years old, you know, a year earlier when, when Driver, you know, he gets he gets arrested for running away with his girlfriend. Imagine this. Okay, so you get you get arrested for running away with your girlfriend. You're you're kind of a yeah, like I said, I think Damien was a punk ass kid. You know, he was a he was a smart ass punk cocky kid. And your juvenile probation officer sits down and starts say, talking to you about satanic cults and animal sacrifices and human sacrifices in the area. And yeah, I'm sure he probably was messing with Driver. I mean, look through social media after we've aired the interviews and talked about some of the things Driver was doing back then. And look at all of the smart-ass comments filling the pages of social media right now. Well, imagine you were sitting right there and this guy is telling you that he knows he's, he's driving around on full moon nights and there's animal sacrifices. And if, they, you know, and I'm not saying if he is or isn't, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, none of us were. But, you know, say that the way Damien described some of those experiences was accurate, where he shows him a picture of a dead possum on the road with tire tracks and says, see, here's an animal sacrifice. And then imagine the punk cocky kid is not going to mess with him. I think he put it here that maybe the two aren't mutually exclusive, but I think that it depends on the situation. So you look at that, how he interacted with Driver. You look at how he interacted with Steve Jones and James Sudbury. And then when he answered the questionnaire the first time, as opposed to when he comes in a day later. Now, now the circumstances have changed. The environment has changed. He went from standing outside his buddy's trailer with his buddy and his girlfriend. You know, I'm sure no doubt standing outside smoking a cigarette, talking to these cops out in the driveway at the trailer park. And you're puffing your chest out and you're trying to look tough in front of your friends and, and neighbors and onlookers and things. As opposed to the next day where you're now in the police station. Uh, I don't know if he was in an interrogation room or if he was in an office where exactly he was at. It doesn't say, I don't think, on the in the notes. But all of a sudden now this is getting serious. Like you have to be thinking, I'm, I'm putting myself in that situation. Holy shit, they actually think that I did this. And you can see the differences in the answers to his responses to the questionnaire. The day before, standing out in the driveway with his buddies, you know, how do you feel about being questioned? I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Now, the next day, now they're questioning you again for like the fifth time, you know, by the fifth officer now in the police station. How do you feel about being questioned? And he says, scared. And I believe that was an, an honest assessment. So I don't think that there's any kind of contradiction there. And it's a very long answer to a very short question. Sorry about that, but but it's, I think it speaks to what was going on in the mind of a teenager and how maybe we don't quite understand that by just applying our own personal experiences to it, that there were times throughout Damien's interaction with law enforcement where I'm sure he was that cocky, punk-ass kid uh, that was making smart-ass remarks and messing with them, 
then there were other times where he was genuinely scared, you know, and then, you know, and then and I think Josh mentioned here the trial, which we'll get to all of that. Um, but yeah, then eventually you get to the trial. And again, now there's an audience in front of him, you know, and there's cameras in front of him. Uh, and, and personally, my, 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 my complete amateur diagnosis of Damien is that he probably had very, very low self-esteem. Uh, I have people that are close to me that have the same issue and tend to overcompensate in front of people. You know, they, they act out in front of other people to kind of make up for the fact that they actually have very low self-esteem. And I think you kind of see that with Damien when you go from, you know, how he's acting when he's, you know, in an interrogation room as opposed to how he's acting when he has an audience in front of him. Okay, and then he says, for those that do believe his statements were made to screw with the cops, why would he still be doing that after three days of increasingly more pointed interviews? Well, I think he did. I think, you know, like the question I just answered, you know, his first point. And again, I hate to keep repeating myself, but but most of Damien messing with the cops was him messing with Jerry Driver uh, way back. Uh, and then there was, you know, the, the interviews on the 7th and the 9th. I don't know what if anything happened on the 8th. But yeah, once he got into the police station, he did. Look at his answers. They're much different. They are more, I think, honest. Uh, I also think that Brian Ridge had a very different interview technique. He's clearly, in my opinion, applying the Reed technique here, which I've said many times is a dangerous, dangerous tool, especially with an adolescent like that, to question somebody using that technique without putting it in check and recording your interview so that you can make sure because it's all too easy when using the Reed technique to actually feed information to the suspects, whether you mean to or not. And then they turn around and end up parroting back to you or agreeing with you. And interviewers or interrogators have been tricked themselves where they've coerced a false confession out without meaning to. You know, Jim Train, a perfect example. He had no idea that it was his fault, which he says later that it was his fault that he had coerced out a false confession by uh, improper use of the read technique. But yeah, and, the, and what he did break down, Josh, once he went into that interview here, he's broke down. Remember the first interview. Will you do a polygraph? No, I don't think they're accurate. This time, will you do a polygraph? Sure, let me sign on the form. You need head hair. You need pubic hair. You need body hair. You need blood samples. You need fingerprints. Whatever you need, you can have it. Uh, he is, Damien is broken down now and is fully cooperating at this point. So you kind of just answered this, but his next point was, was he the smartest guy in the room, or at least think he was? Or was he parroting back answers fed to him by investigators? Well, parroting back answers, I know I, I just said that, but I think that people are taking literally maybe the questions from the questionnaire or or making some assumptions. So when they say parroting back answers in this interview, it doesn't necessarily mean Brian. It, it, well, and actually, it really doesn't mean that you know, the, the interview where Brian Ridge says, for let me see, as an example, that he's saying this was some type of thrill kill. And then Damien's repeating back, this was some type of thrill kill. What happens, especially when you're interviewing in the read technique, is you're you're giving the interviewee, you're giving them out, you're giving them ways to justify things. It's that's so dangerous because somebody who has a high suggestibility factor, which we're definitely going to get into as we move on with this case, if they're they're highly suggestible, it's extremely dangerous, which happens more in adolescence, anytime before the age of 25, before the frontal cortex is fully developed and is able to uh, do better reasoning, but that's a discussion for another day. But you know, what happens is they'll be talking to him and, and you're you're setting the person at ease. You're trying to make them feel comfortable. It's like what you're doing is you're setting your suspect up 
for a confession, okay, in the read technique. So there, there goes interview first, interrogation later are the steps. And so what you're doing is you're slowly giving them weight, making them feel comfortable, making them trust you, giving them excuses, giving them outs so that later they can reference back to that when they confess if you have the right person, you know, if you're, if you're doing it properly. So the thrill kill is probably a bad example of that. But asking questions like, well, do you think it was an accident or could have been an accident? Well, understand, they probably didn't ask it if they were doing the read technique properly. They didn't ask it that way. They're like, what do you think? I mean, you know, so they will suggest that this could have been an accident, right? I mean, heck, maybe, you know, maybe somebody was was playing with them and accidentally drowned them in the in the water. Now, in this instance, Damien says, no, I don't think it's an accident, which, by the way, is a lot of people would suggest as an indication of innocence because a lot of guilty people will start to take those little outs. I'll be like, you know, yeah, it could have been. It might have been. But um, but getting back to, I guess, your point is the the parroting back is usually just a conversation like that. Like, what do you think about this? I mean, you think it was just like a thrill kill? And, and literally, the suspect could say, or Damien Eccles at this point could say, yeah, that makes sense. So he's not, e- so Damien's not even saying could not be, because again, we don't have, we don't have a recording. Yes, I think this is a thrill kill, or I think this is a thrill kill. What's actually more than likely happening from my reading as a, as a trained interviewer, interrogator myself, and having read through many, many of these interviews and listened to many, many of them that were recorded, I think likely what is happening there is he's saying so, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, do you think that it was, uh, you know, a, a sexual kill or do you think it was a serious, you think it was just, you, you think somebody was mad at him? You think it was just like a thrill kill? And if Damon's like, yeah, I guess a thrill kill, I don't, I don't know. But then Ridge is then documenting his report, thinks it's a thrill kill, which then later becomes, says it's a thrill kill when, when he gets on the stand and he gets into trial. So I'm having a real problem today, Mike, with rambling, I feel like. We can't record these episodes early in the morning or late in the day. <laughs> they have to be the perfect time. Yeah, like right after lunch like, is good. Yeah, 12.45. Right. We're super and, early this morning. And done by 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, but anyway, I don't think that it's parroting back on the way a lot of people think. I think that, that Brian Ridge in this interview is implying the read technique. He's making suggestions and Damien is either agreeing or disagreeing with them. And then... From those suggestions, you know, that becomes he thinks this. Well, and and technically he's not wrong because he said, well, what do you think? Could it be this? Damien says, yes, sure. Or any suspect. Yeah, sure. That could be it. Well, so now he can document correctly. He thinks 
fill in the blank. All right, and his next point is, why was it such a red flag to Damien that the other Jason Baldwin killed snakes, when Damien would later admit he and his best friend Jason Baldwin hunted snakes all the time? I think that that part of the interview is another indication, getting back to Josh's earlier point, that Damien had broken at this point. He was done being a smartass, and now he was actually scared that they were trying to pin this thing on him, because I don't think he thought Jason, the other Jason Baldwin was involved at all, or L.G. Hollingsworth, for that matter, which we'll get into in, in this coming week's episode. Because look at, you know, he was asked in the previous interview on the questionnaire, do you know who did this? And he said, no. Or do you think you know? No, I don't. So, and then this discussion, he says in this interview, apparently he says the big mean Jason Baldwin and L.G. Hollingsworth could have done it. But then in the in the polygraph test, they said, do you think you know who did this or do you suspect who did this? And again, he says no. And so to me, if, if him answering that, talking about the Jason Baldwin and the LG Hollingsworth, is another indication that he indeed was freaking scared at this point. And so he's just trying to, and you'll see it. I mean, to truly have a good understanding of what's happening here, you have to study other cases. There's, there are people that are very, very, very extremely well-versed in this case, but only ever studying this case is like putting blinders on. Uh, you, you need to be able to understand how these interviews work in a multitude of cases and how suspects react and behave in multitudes of cases. So, And, and I think that's where maybe there's some disconnect between me and some of the longtime West Memphis three case uh, enthusiasts, for lack of a better term, are on this. Because for me, I'm looking at this case like every other case. And so like when I see that, that's an indication to me that this person is truly scared. Innocent or guilty, they're scared. And so they'll start, I think in, in previous seasons, I've described this as flailing, where they'll, start, they'll just start throwing shit against the wall to see what sticks, doing, doing anything to get the attention off of them. Because it seems like it went from a casual conversation to there is a lot of attention by the police on them. They're being accused now. They feel like a suspect, and they want that attention to go somewhere else. So I would guess that Damien probably doesn't have a very good relationship with the other Jason Baldwin or with L.G. Hollingsworth, and probably likely has no reason to suspect them. The killing snakes thing was probably just something he threw out to... They're, remember, they're hitting him with all this satanic panic stuff, right? Oh, look at the questions about religions and satanism and and all this stuff so what does he throw back at him well that guy kills snakes for fun even though uh, damien has said he's hunted snakes but you know they didn't know that so it's like here's something that that makes him look like a suspect and again as you analyze that statement and you think back to to what damien's doing in his mind that's like this is crazy like like that seemed like a legit at that time like a legitimate way to send the police in a different direction is to say that somebody kills snakes. That tells you right there the impression the police gave him that the only thing they were interested in was that this was some weird ritual satanic killing. So he tells them, well, here's a guy that kills snakes. All right, and his last point here, I understand people are quick to explain away many of his statements even turning the conversation into a debate about the core tenets of Wicca versus Satanism. But I would genuinely ask everyone to imagine a suspect in any other case you follow saying the following and you not finding it the least bit suspicious. And I'm going to paraphrase some quotes here. It probably made the killer feel powerful. 
The younger the victims, the more innocent, and therefore the more power the killer would derive from it. The killer would not have cared about being so close to the expressway because the sound would have covered the screams. And lastly, the killer would not care about getting caught. These are all quotes from Damien, obviously. Well, the first point I would make is that those aren't quotes from Damien. We don't know what Damien said. And that's an important distinction to make. Now, I'm not even saying that you know Ridge is lying here or anything like that. I'm not accusing him of that, but I'm saying there's no recording of the interview, which is just asinine, stupid. It's absolutely stupid to not, and, and even at that time, there are small portable recorders you can put on anywhere. You know, cops had them in their pockets half the time. I mean, give me a break. Uh, to not record this is just lazy or stupid or intentional. But in any case, these are just notes. And again, you're right. It would be insane. It would be insane for Damien Eccles to sit in an interview. And the way Josh writes it is though he sat there and said, well, you know that the younger the victim is, the more innocent they are. And the more innocent they are, the more power the person would derive from killing them. Of course. I mean, I can tell you with, with the fair amount of certainty that no suspect is going to say that. What happened there, I'm sure, is that, well, what's the significance of uh, of a victim being younger? You know, like in like in Satanism, like what would it mean? Is there any significance to a younger victim? Like, I don't know, younger means more innocent. So if they're more innocent, why would someone, like, why would a Satanist want to kill somebody that's more innocent? Like, why would that matter? Like, would they get more power out of that or something? Yeah, maybe. You know, so, you know, I don't know that it went down exactly like that, but I guarantee you it was much more like that than Damien. I mean, you're, you're picturing like some, when you read the notes, and especially the report written later, compare it to the answer to the other's questions. He's scared. He's giving up biological samples. He's giving up polygraphs. And then he looks him in the eyes and says, well, they kill them because they're younger and they're more innocent. And the more innocent, the more power. It's not what he said. I'm, I guarantee you that's not what he said. And I guarantee you the you know, when they say, you know, he says, I, th I think he misquoted him there when he said that he wouldn't be afraid of the freeway. I think what he said was in the notes, wouldn't be afraid of hearing screams because of the freeway right there. And again, I'm certain that, that that statement didn't just come out of whole cloth. You know, Damien didn't say, I don't think he'd be afraid of the screams. Again, you have to understand how the read technique works. During this interview, my opinion and my, and I'll say assumption of this is how that conversation was going is, well, you know, they were, they were killed right there. Don't you think, I, I would think the killer would be worried about them screaming. I don't know. Do you think maybe they weren't worried about them screaming because they were right there next to the highway? Yeah, that make that makes sense. And and, and the neighborhood's right there, so I you know I guess with the you know probably with the highway and the and the neighborhood right there, they probably didn't have to worry about them screaming. Yeah, probably not. I mean, I mean do you think they probably I mean, the killer probably even liked the screaming, right? Yeah, that's how the read technique works, and that's why I don't like it. And it's a shitty way to interview, and and you can tell as you pick apart the answers to a lot of these questions, that that's what was happening. You know, the, the consistency in the way the answers are, are written make no sense other than, than the interviewer was making suggestions and that the respondent, the suspect, was just basically answering the questions or answering uh, his opinion on suggestions. And in this case, and, and I, I will say 
I'm not making a call innocence or guilt right now, but I will say that the this first few days of investigation, I am thoroughly disappointed in, and I'm sure I'm walking on stuff you're going to ask later, Mike, but you know, to write something in a report, and this was uh, Durham, I believe, to write in your official report admission through lack of denial, give me a fucking break. For those of you that don't understand police work or the law, that's ridiculous to write that in a report. Like, oh, he didn't deny it, so he's admitting it. Now, you you can list the facts, but to put that in a report is ridiculous. And that's it's obvious at this point they were they were trying to make Damien Eccles look guilty. There's no other way to put it. You know, now whether he was actually guilty or not, if you're an end justifies the the means kind of person, that's okay. But for me, analyzing this from a strictly investigative point of view on how you interview people and how you document things, uh, as I'm starting to investigate the investigation, not looking at Damien Eccles, but looking at the investigation, these cops are bending the rules big time already here. Okay, this next question is from listener Daniel. Daniel writes, was urine found in one or more of the boys' stomachs? If yes, then it is more than a coincidence that Steve Jones asked Damien about it. How many other murders and rapes involved urinating in the victim's mouth? If this is a common fetish, then I can understand the questioning. But if this is something that doesn't happen, it's extremely scary. What do you think, Bob? Uh, I, I don't know uh, anything about statistics in other murders or sexual assaults. What I can tell you is no, there was never any urine found in the stomachs of these victims. It does raise some questions. Certainly, you know, there was a lot of mystery about it, but Peretti in a later deposition or when he was on the stand or in the Rule 37 hearing, in no uncertain terms, said, no, I don't know where that came from because I never said anything about that. I never found anything like that. I don't even know. And, and I think it had to do with, because it was in the reports, I think Damien's defense uh, during the appeals, wanted DNA testing done of the urine found in the boys' stomachs because he'd been told there was urine in the stomachs. And then so they bring Peretti up, and he's like, what the hell are you talking about? There was no urine in their stomachs. This is another indication of you're going to be looking at, in my opinion, either some incompetence or some corruption or a combination thereof. Uh, but this urine in the stomach thing is, is a perfect example of it. That it's It's a rumor. That just went, that just spread out of control. So the origin of it seems to be from the interview with Damien and Steve Jones the day after the bodies were found. Now, Damien says Steve Jones told him there was urine in the stomachs uh, and that the, the, the killer had urinated in their mouth. I, I will tell you my opinion. I believe Damien because Steve Jones, number one, has never claimed otherwise. As far as I know, he's never said that Damien told him that. Say you think Damien is, is guilty, and if that was true, why would he say that to somebody? Like, give his, you know, give away why he did something or that he'd done something? It makes no sense. So, so to me, my opinion is that that did, in fact, come from Steve Jones. And it's maybe an assumption. Maybe it's something that he had seen in other cases. I don't know. I mean, he wasn't a cop. He was a juvenile probation officer. So he suggests to Damien that that's what happened. Now, who else is in the room there? Sudbury is in the room. So now there's three people that believe this happened or are considering, I'm wondering if it did based on Jones's question. And Damien found it so odd that two days later, uh, or uh, what is it, three days later, when he's interviewing with Brian Ridge, he tells Ridge, man, Steve Jones was talking to me last week, and he told me that the boy's testicles were cut off and that the killer had urinated in their mouths. 
and Shane Griffin is in the room there too. So now you've got Steve Jones, James Sudbury, Brian Ridge, and Shane Griffin, and Damien, and anybody else Damien had talked to, which I'm sure were plenty of people, his friends or whoever, and and starts talking about this of the entire conversation with Jones. What what what, he, what caught his attention? What he repeated back to Ridge is testicles removed and urinated in their mouths. And so somehow this this keeps spreading that started from Steve Jones probably just suggesting or asking, hey, do you think this is what happened? Or do you know anything about this? All the way to where now the chief inspector of the West Memphis Police Department, Gary Gitchell, is writing a letter to the prosecutor and the medical examiner saying that now it's become, now it has turned into, in that letter it says Dr. Peretti said there was urine in their stomachs. So so you see it's like the game of telephone. It just keeps morphing and changing from one person to another. So it starts off, hey, do you think this could have happened? To, hey, Steve Jones told me this did happen. To, by the time it gets to Gitchell, Dr. Peretti said that it happened. And it's not cleared up until 15 years later when Peretti gets on the stand and says, what the hell are you talking about? None of that ever happened. So uh, the answer to the question is no. There was no, as far as I know, there was no... I, I I can tell you, no, it was never proven, and there's no documented medical evidence that there was urine in the stomachs of any of the boys. The source of the rumor certainly came from the conversation with Jones and Damien. I personally believe that it came from Steve Jones. Damien said as much a couple days after that interview, and to my knowledge, Jones has never said anything different. Okay, Lacey wants to know, does anyone know if Jerry Driver has an alibi for the night the boys were killed? He's throwing up red flags all around. I don't know, and I, I first of all, I don't want to get into alternate suspects really here yet, and I, I don't think I'm even comfortable naming a quasi-law enforcement officer as a suspect. There's just nothing to indicate that right now. I mean, we'll, we'll address all that stuff later. It was a full moon night when he said he was out on, he normally patrolled along with Steve Jones, uh, but keep in mind, I think the boys were missing and dead before, this, before it was even dark outside, uh, before the sun even went down, so I, I don't know. I, I did find it odd. Well, I didn't find it odd. It's kind of par for the course when Jerry Driver was on the stand. And it goes to show you exactly what I was saying here a minute ago about how, you know, this ends justifies the means police work that's gone on in this case. It goes on in this case, and you'll see more and more of it. When Jerry Driver's on the stand, he has this detail at the trial, this detailed account of the three boys and their long coats and their staffs. And he's seen it many times, you know, all this detailed account. And then he says, the last question, if you caught that audio a couple episodes ago where they said, well, did you see Damien Eccles on May 5th? And his last response is, I don't recall. I mean, it's just, it's just absolute par for the course. He just he's he won't even say, no, I didn't see him that day. You know, he just I can't recall that. And it's just kind of blinders, in my opinion. You're looking at blinders. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, our next question comes from Robin. Robin writes, is it normal for a detective to perform polygraph examinations? Did Durham have any special training to do so? Not sure why I land on the veracity of a polygraph, but I definitely do not trust results if it is performed by someone not extensively trained. 
I don't know what Durham's training was, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm assuming that yes, he was trained in the polygraph. I mean, it's not a polygraph machine is not something that just gives you a buzzer that says lie, truth. You know, there, there's charts and they have to read and analyze the charts. So you have to have, you know, training to be able to do it. I don't know, but I know there are good polygraph examiners and bad polygraph examiners. And there are, you know, there are some that are, that are known throughout the country as being very, very good. And the reason that there are good ones and bad ones is the part of a polygraph that makes it accurate or not accurate. And again, it's not a lie detector test. It's, it's a polygraph. It's just measuring your body's response to being questioned and, and, and answering certain questions is based mostly on, on, you know, your, your heart rate and your blood pressure, uh, even your respiration rates, things like that. So, so Durham was trained, but, um, the part, like I started to say, that what makes it accurate is the examiner, the person who's evaluating the results and also how they administer the test and results. And one of the biggest problems that I have with this polygraph is the fact that in the report afterwards, they don't list the control questions or they don't list how he responded to the control questions and what the results were, which is critical. You know, D- Damien, you know, I'm not saying that that he was lying or not lying. I don't know. Uh, but he but he definitely had indications, according to Durham, of deception during his polygraph examination. But the thing is, with, with Damien being, you know, he he was definitely on some medications and had some some level of mental illness. Uh, he was scared. He was young. There's a whole lot of things that factor into this. So what you want to know is when you said, you know, is your name Damien Eccles? And he says, yes. Did that show deception? The whole purpose in the control questions is for you to understand, to know how to have a baseline and know how that they're going to react once they, they take the actual polygraph and ask what they call the relevant questions. So we don't know. I mean, it's possible they asked Damien 10 questions, only four were relevant, and that he showed deception on all of them, which would be an indication that the test results are not accurate. They're not, they don't mean anything because his body responds to questions, whether he's telling the truth or lying in the same way. Uh, so this polygraph is really hard to put a whole lot of weight into, but getting back to the core of your question, was Durham trained? I, I guess I've, I've never seen his credentials, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yes, he was trained because it's not, it's not something anyone could really even do without training. But I, again, I wish they had recorded it and I wish we had answers to the control questions to see how he did on the controls. All right. In the last follow-up, you asked for people who knew about Wicca to clear up some things about those statements and several people did. We received a ton of information from listeners. I want to give a big shout out to Jocelyn, Alexandra, Adam, Caitlin, Nancy, and Megan, just to name a few. Thanks, everybody. So, Bob, what did you find out about Wicca? Uh, some surprising things, actually, and yeah, and I wish there's just too many. And as the week's going on, we had to kind of, you know, obviously, as always, pull the plug and do the podcast because because we're we're leaving people out because there was a lot of people uh, that sent us information about this. But yeah, I found out some surprising things. Uh, one, the penis being a symbol of power, which I thought seemed odd for Wicca because it's you know there's a female goddess. What I found out was, and I and I've got a few different kind of versions about this. But the penis or a phallic is a symbol that is not necessarily means power from what I've been told, but is something that is important in the religion of Wicca, which I have learned a lot about Wiccans. They are uh, very passive, nonviolent, first of all. And and it's really it's all about nature. Wicca is about nature and and the reason that the penis or the or a phallic is important 
is because even though there's a female goddess, in order to create life, there has to be a balance uh, with a female and a male in order to create life. So they do hold the penis in higher regards, higher regards than I thought they did. And then uh, also the number three, I, I've got several different responses about that, that it does have have meaning in Wicca, and, and I should have wrote these things down, but there's, uh, if you go on social media, there's a lot of discussion about it. But there are three elements to the goddess, and I'm trying to remember one of the terms, but it's, you know, that, that she's like a mother, basically a child and a, and a goddess, different elements. Um, there, there's a lot of different places where the number three is important in Wicca. So those two statements in the interview can be related to Wicca for sure. And then I had some people come in that were either Satanists or knew people who were Satanists or had studied that religion and said that really those things don't very much relate to Satanism. So it's a little it's a little odd. And maybe I was completely wrong about how they were written in the report because my issue is I didn't know anything about either one. I was looking at handwritten notes by Ridge. You know, it, it said Satanist three is symbol of power, and you know, in Satanism the penis is a symbol of power. And then when it got written into the final report, it says, you know, that in his religion, three is powerful. And so that, that was my only issue is that the handwritten notes didn't match the, the final report. But as it turns out, that those things are important pieces of Wicca. And it seems like maybe not so much in Satanism. Also, funny thing with all of the, I had some people sending me some quotes from the, um, the Satanic Bible. I don't personally have a copy of it, but they were showing me some some clips of it and talking about it quite a bit. And one thing, th- this whole deal of it being a satanic occult ritual killing, in the satanic Bible, there is no mention of killing at all. No sacrifices, and certainly, it's when I sold, certainly no child sacrifices, which is I've, I found interesting. Yeah, when I was reading the post, it said uh, no children or animal sacrifices. So I just wanted to pay attention to you there and make sure you got that one right. Yeah, that's so this whole thing, the whole complete and total angle of this having to do with any kind of a cult or religion or sacrifice is just, I mean, it's looking more and more just stupid, really. When you, when you, when we get down to that part of it, it's got nothing. This is a horrible, awful crime that happened to these three little boys. And it's like the the focus was just completely in the wrong place. Had nothing to do with any of that stuff. All right, now we have one from Lori. She says, who is the older woman who called in that tip? The caller was anonymous, uh, and I don't think it's ever explained who she was. Um, But we will, as we move on to these episodes, we kind of start to narrow down and get an idea of who it was. But, But again, it was anonymous tip, so we don't know for certain who it was. Okay, this one's from Helena. I'm a little confused with the ending of episode 514, but what was Bob getting at with the coincidence suggestion? Okay, that's a good question because there's no answer to it. Uh, and I think we talked about this in the, in the follow-up. Uh, it was, here, here's, you're going to be all right, Mike? Yeah, I'm all right. That's a good question because there's no answer to it. That well, was, yeah, it was literally meant to leave a little mystery. This case is tricky because in any other season, we can end an episode with kind of a a cliffhanger, leaving you wondering what's coming next. Well, in this case, there's so many people that already know, maybe not where we're going next, but they know so many details about it, and they're like, "Oh, well, you must be talking about this or this or this or this." But you know, it was it was kind of meant to be a little mystery. When I said, "Do you believe in coincidences?" 
it could be taken a lot of different ways. Do you believe that, you know, could it be a coincidence that early in the day, Damien mentions LG, and then later in the day, there's a tip about LG? Could word have gotten around, or it could it be a coincidence that Damien mentions LG, and there's a tip about LG, meaning, you know, can't be a coincidence, maybe LG's actually involved. There's a lot of different ways that could have been taken. That's all that was. It's just it's just intended to be a little bit of a cliffhanger leading us into this week's episode. Okay, and lastly, from Twitter, Angela Edwards wants to know, did Ed Aids get parole? No, not yet. So the process is the reason we were in such a hurry to get all the parole letters in, which, again, thank you all of you that sent them. Uh, they've all been turned over to Ed's parole attorney and Allison Clayton with the Innocence Project of Texas, who's working this case, of course, so that you all know. But so Ed is eligible for parole in April. And the way that the parole system works in Texas, they can that call him in for his interview before the parole board anytime within two months of that date. And so that was the big hurry to get all this documentation in, because since he's coming up in April, they could have called him in as early as this week, uh, but they haven't yet. So no, he has not been granted parole yet. We still have our fingers crossed. There's a lot happening in his case. You know, his, his DNA has hit the lab and is in the process of being tested. Uh, all the DNA evidence from that case. I believe that uh, Matt Bingham, Smith County, is actually finally reaching out to the FBI to try to get the fingerprints off of the phone in that case and have them, you know, they were taken before there was such a thing as APHIS. And so they're going to run those fingerprints through APHIS and see if that gives us a hit. Uh, and he has his parole coming up all at one time. So. You know, we're really hopeful for Ed's release in a number of different ways here, hopefully within the next year, but we'll see what happens. But, but thanks for checking in, and we will you know, continue asking about those cases, and we'll continue updating you. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, Jesse Eldridge's case, uh, for those of you that are wondering about that, we're still waiting on the second round of DNA testing in his case right now. And that one, we just have a lot less to talk about there because, you know, in that case, we got the Innocence Project of Texas, and then we got the Conviction Integrity Unit involved as well. And so Allison is working hand-in-hand with uh, Cynthia Garza from the from the Conviction Integrity Unit. And so that's, that case has become kind of a closed loop where I, I don't know a whole lot about what's happening there. I get little updates. I know that, you know, they're they're both working really hard to correct the injustice that happened in that case. So they're still right now waiting on DNA evidence to come back in his case. And as you guys all know that listen to season three, uh, there's actually quite a case for Jesse's actual innocence already built. Uh, but I think they're looking for that icing on the cake with a DNA match to someone other than Jesse. Because, you know, there was no none of Jesse's DNA on the scene, but we're looking to get a DNA match to the offender to make it a much more easy clear-cut process. So, you know, really hoping within the next year, that we'll see both Jesse Eldridge and Edward Aids walking free, as well as Anansi Ed from season one, who hopefully the appeals process will end in his case and, and he'll finally be released. And then let's not forget our season four case, George Powell, and his his may be the quickest out of all of them. Uh, George's were just waiting on the judge's ruling. All of his habeas hearings are over. He, I believe, very, like like Jesse and Ed, probably even more so, is, a, is the absolute most clear case of wrongful conviction and absolute injustice that I've seen. And so he's gone through the process. The judge has heard the evidence and sometime soon there should be a ruling in his case too. So it's been a, it's been a long few years working on all these cases and they're kind of all coming to their conclusion all about the same time. So hopefully, you know, the next several months we'll have some good news. All right. That's going to do it for this week's follow-up. Thanks everybody for your thoughts and theories.
Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. Thank you to Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement support. Keep sending us in those emails, those tweets, those Facebook messages, and don't forget about our voicemail line at 269-224-2833. Remember, you can call us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and leave us a voicemail with a tip, a question, a comment, or a theory. So however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. station in an interrogation room skip the man with you you heard something outside that was easy that was not easy (laughs) okay and these last words from kristen aren't a question but she's got some good points oh i don't know what else to say it's so hard for me to explain this but i want to share these with you since they pertain to damien in the situation at hand whatever she says, is anyone... <laughs> what are you talking about? She, right, I know. <laughs> she says, is anyone else listening to these podcast? She says, is anyone else listening to these episodes thinking about the following things? All the really stupid things you did or said as a teen. All the memories you have that over the years become more blurry and unclear and even changed over time. And how retelling your own stories in a different context or to a different person can give them a new slant. Um... So I want you to touch on this. Am I supposed to answer? No, no, I just want you to say, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, when we were young, we only see things clearly. And then you could even talk about, you know, your medulla um, God is not fully developed until you're 25. Well, that brings me to my next point, which I'm is... not going to say medulla oblongata. <laughs> on the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex. Yeah, on the, on the podcast. <laughs> so you've got this all mapped out you anticipated i totally if you i think you weren't paying attention is what i think happened i was playing with you've the been exa- playing with I was that playing with the, ex- the exacto knife and the dog over you here. can't bail me out of this one huh i really i liked her post and i wanted to share it and okay. i thought maybe you'd be like yeah but you know what <laughs> now nix it no well again real so it's she's saying that she's just thinking back to when she was a kid and how yeah like what you know like Putting, um, if you could put yourself in Damien's shoes as a teenager. Okay. I, I can do something with that. <laughs> Why are you picking shoes when to leave me hanging like that? <laughs> well, there's no... Okay. All right. You can totally find something to say here. It's it's a good pose. How much editing do you want to do? We're 56 minutes in. All right. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Okay. All right. All right I'm with you. Ready? All right. I'm ready. You ready? <laughs> Hang on, I'll be with you in a second. Are there more questions or is that the last one? What are you doing? No, we want to know about Ed. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, we. Yeah, those stories do change over time, you know? (laughs) Yeah, okay, stop. (laughs)
I'm thinking. No, we're going to cut the whole bit. I don't think so. <laughs> no, I can already see it in your eyes. You got nothing. I got nothing. Yeah, those stories do change over time, you know? <laughs> no, just just nix it. Just nix it. <laughs> sure. I thought maybe and maybe you had something. Jeez. All right. Okay. I got nothing. Uh, I think maybe we should cut that. The whole thing. Yeah. Right. Jesus. I and that wasn't <laughs> Maybe you fucking answer it. How about gonna, that? I don't answer questions on follow-ups. I'm not an investigator. No, but you're it's a conversation. You don't need to be an investigator to, to know that you're a fucking idiot when you're a kid. No. You leave yourself hanging. Let's move on to the next question. That was easy. That was easy. Yeah. I need to I need to give out an award. Gotcha. Do you want to know what the award is for? What's the award? It's for best use of colorful language on social media. It's an annual, it's the first annual best use of colorful language on social media award. Wow, okay. How do you win that? <laughs> well, well, you you use colorful language well on social media. And then you read it and you give out the award? Uh, yeah, I give out the award. You want to know who wins the award? Who wins the award? <laughs> the the 2018 winner of best use of colorful language on social media is can you do like a drum roll? That's, that's my drum roll. More like a Tia Vitale, you are the winner of the best use of colorful language on social media for 2018. Congratulate her. Hey, congrats, Tia. <laughs> right on. This is cool. <laughs> Unless something hilarious happens. <laughs> That's all I'm using there. I fucking hate your guts. <laughs> <laughs>